El Nino Speaks is back with the great George Samueli of the Gaggle today. We're going to be discussing the geopolitical insanity that is taking place in Eastern Europe. How are things going for you, George? Pretty good. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great. And yeah, let's dive in because you and your estimable co-host Peter Lavelle on the Gaggle have been dropping some serious truth about the Russo-Ukrainian conflict, which is desperately needed at the moment. Just to start off, what are your overall thoughts about how the conflict is currently going at the moment? Well, I think that um, the Russians are slowly but uh, steadily racking up uh, victories. I think it's clear that there is no way that Ukraine can win the war. Certainly that that's out of the question. But it's becoming less and less likely that Ukraine will be able to hold on to very much of Ukraine. I think they're going to lose a great deal of uh, territory. I mean, obviously, the Donetsk and Lugansk People's Republics will be gone. The Azov seacoast will be gone. The Black Sea coast likely uh, will be gone. More seriously, I think there's going to be provinces and towns that would just simply secede from Ukraine. I mean, I think that the government in Kiev will have less and less territory over which it will exercise any kind of uh, jurisdiction. So, you know, I, I think really, you know, realistically, the Ukrainian state will just simply cease to exist in the near future. So do you believe that Ukraine will end up being like a rump state or it be like divided between like East and West, or we'll just get absorbed by Russia like entirely for the most part? Well, I think that um, the rump state problem is that Russia will not allow Ukraine simply to sign an agreement and then um, immediately begin planning its revenge with the help of NATO. In other words, uh, you know, they, they sign a peace deal and then right away, NATO starts um, rearming Ukraine, particularly if uh, the United States and the United Kingdom start um, distributing long-distance uh, missiles to Kiev, which means that Kiev would relaunch this war within two years with the uh, approval and encouragement of uh, the United States and NATO. Russia can't possibly allow that. So if there is to be an agreement with any kind of a rump state, there would have to be absolute uh, international guarantees of total demilitarization and absolute international guarantees that there will be no rearmament and no foreign forces present in uh, this rump state. I don't know whether Zelensky or any of the people around him would be able to sign such an agreement. If they don't, then I think the war will just simply continue because I think the Russians really, having sustained losses, uh, substantial losses, they're not just going to accept an agreement whereby um, Ukraine will just relaunch the war in a couple of years. So I think then they would just move into the western part of the country, secure the borders, and some maintain some kind of a military presence on the borders of this uh, rump state. Either that or, uh, as I say, the state disintegrates, so therefore, you know, various bits and pieces of it will start seceding, joining other parts of uh, the secessionist uh, republics. Or maybe Poland will move in, take over the Galician part of uh, Ukraine, and then maybe the Hungarians will say, hey, we need to move in 
protect uh, uh, the Hungarian nationals. So that's a possibility. There's also another possibility, which is that Zelensky might um, invite in somebody else to take over the government, somebody that would agree to to such a peace treaty with Russia. So then he could bring in uh, Medvedchuk and say, ask Medvedchuk to form a government. It's not even impossible that um, he might invite um, Yanukovych to come back and preside over the government. Um, but I think that you know, Ukraine, in any shape or form, in, in any kind of resemblance to what existed between 2014, I mean, before February the 24th, I think that that's gone. I think that there's not going to be any kind of a, a Ukraine that existed before February the 24th. Yeah, it's pretty crazy stuff. But uh, yeah, I'm in agreement as well, because once Ukraine becomes landlocked, it's just going to end up being this EU de facto dependency that's going to be subsidized there. And plus, pre-Maidan, Ukraine was already pretty corrupt. So we're not talking about like a Swiss democracy here. So I think the future is pretty bleak in that regard. Now, I want to shift the discussion to one point that you guys have raised at the gaggle that's made me kind of chuckle because you've been hammering away at these so-called libertarians and coterie of realists who almost sound exactly like the corporate press when it comes to detailing the events unfolding in Ukraine. What's up with that? <laughs> well, that's the interesting thing is that we have this uh, coterie of um, writers that are around antiwar.com, the American conservative, responsible statecraft, and they are extraordinarily prolix. I mean, they write all the time. Uh, and they don't really have a great deal to say because essentially they accept all of the premises of uh, U.S. foreign policy uh, enunciated by the um, the corporate press, by uh, the think tanks, by the U.S. policymakers. And so they appear to be critics and they appear to, oh, well, we're very strongly against um, American foreign policy. And, and they kind of fool people when they re- you realize that actually you've pretty much accepted everything. So what happens is that um, just as U.S. policymakers claim, they divide the world into the good guys, which is us, the United States, the United Kingdom, NATO, the European Union, and the bad guys. The bad guys could be uh, Russia in this case, but it could easily be Milosevic in Serbia kind of uh, 20 years ago. It could be, uh, you know, Gaddafi. It could be uh, Saddam Hussein. And they basically, yes, they essentially uh, accept uh, all of the, um, the desirability of defeating and destroying these bad guys but they kind of quibble over the means whereby you do it. So what happens is they say, well, yeah, Russia committed an act of aggression. It was an unjustified act of aggression. And then just in order to burnish their anti-war credentials, uh, they say, well, but, you know, NATO is not wholly innocent. You know, they, you know, NATO has made its own share of uh, mistakes and missteps. Well, if you say that, then your original point that the, the attack on Ukraine was unjustified has to then disappear. I mean, how can it be unjustified if essentially NATO has been expanding eastward and clearly threatening Russia? 
but they can never do that because they're still too much in the uh, corporate you, you know, policymaker mindset. You know, if, if you really think about what, what has the United States been doing by expanding NATO? Well, I mean, it's obviously it's full spectrum dominance. I mean, it's seeking to essentially do what Paul Wolfowitz said the U.S. should do. He said this back in 1991 when he wrote a memo to uh, George H.W. Bush at the time. Wolfowitz was head of the policy planning of the State Department, which is we cannot allow any other power to dominate any continent uh, in the world. The United States must be the dominant power on every single continent. That's what Wolfowitz before, and that's what the U.S. has been doing. So it's been expanding NATO precisely in order to contain, constrain, and uh, surround Russia to ensure that Russia ceases to be any kind of a, a great power because it will be surrounded by hostile states, which will just simply be NATO satellites. In other words, they would house U.S. military bases. That's what the policy was. And then, you know, and the U.S. has pursued it very consistently. Now, the U.S., of course, doesn't admit that that's what it does. It says, no, 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 we're, we're just defensive. NATO's a defensive alliance. We're just simply... Um, issuing um, defense uh, guarantees to you know, little countries that are terrified of Russia. And essentially, you know, it, it, the United States is surrounding Russia. But the amazing thing is that these people, these uh, responsible state of American conservative types, accept that argument, accept that NATO is all about issuing defense guarantees, as if all these countries are absolutely terrified that Russia is going to come back and invade them, and that the United States is actually you know, selflessly issuing these uh, guarantees. So what's their one critique of this uh, NATO expansion? Well, we're subsidizing their welfare states. You know, we're giving them blank check. That enables them to run these welfare states. You know, that's, that's the ultimate sin, you know, that they have welfare states. But it, it's nothing to do with the welfare state. It's nothing to do with any of these little countries. I mean, you know, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, they're insignificant militarily. What matters is that this is a valuable piece of real estate that the United States is scooping up. And all of it, in Romania and Bulgaria, they're militarily insignificant. But it's a valuable piece of real estate because it's on the Black Sea. Same with Finland. Finland's an insignificant. Right? It's, it has a population of uh, four and a half million. Armed forces about 20,000. Finland by itself is of no interest at all. But... As a landmass a few miles from St. Petersburg, as a land that is would lock Russia in in, in the uh, Baltic Sea, as a landmass close to the White Sea to Murmansk, a place from which uh, the United States can block Russia and access to the Arctic, mm-hmm. then it's a real piece of real estate. That's what NATO's about. But, <laughs> but of course, the propagandists make it out as if well, we're just selflessly going around issuing these defense guarantees, you know, because they're all, you know, absolutely petrified of Russia. It's ridiculous. And we we know it's ridiculous because if it was the other way around and Russia issued uh, a defense guarantee to Mexico, everyone in the United States would know exactly what that meant. And not for for one minute would the United States accept a Russian defense guarantee to Mexico. But you you would have thought that these 
libertarian, realist, whatever. <laughs> you think that they would understand this. No, 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 there's a no. It's all about subsidizing the European welfare states. That's, that's the ultimate sin. My God, you know, these Europe. That's such a boomer take, like such a like Reaganite take. Yeah, you know, these, these you know, we, we, they're, getting, they're getting a free ride. Imagine that free ride. That's the horrific thing. So that's why, you know, their analyses are just so absurd. And then you have, um, you know, some of them, you know, even now when the mainstream media kind of accepting that uh, Ukraine's not going to win this war, that Ukraine is heading for a defeat. Those people you know, who are writing at antiwar.com still insist, oh, no, no, you know, Ukraine is doing very well. And in fact, you know, so well is Ukraine doing, it just shows that Russia is not really any kind of a threat to anyone because uh, Russia is so weak, it's actually a geopolitical weakling. We don't have to worry about anything. And so therefore, that they take to be an argument against NATO. No need to provide these um, guarantees and no need to subsidize their welfare state because Russia is a geopolitical weakling because they haven't been able to defeat Ukraine. This is an amazingly stupid argument because, you know, people just see this and say, wait, look, the United States wasn't able to defeat uh, Vietnam. That means the United States is a geopolitical weakening. Hey, the United States wasn't able to defeat the Taliban after 20 years. That means it's a, you know, it's a geopolitical weakling. It's, it's a ridiculous argument because Ukraine was always a, uh, you know, it's a serious military power. It's the, by population, it's the seventh largest country in Europe. By territory, it's the second largest country in Europe next to Russia. It has been armed to the teeth for uh, eight years by NATO. Self-NATO. Yep. It's not a bunch of goat herders. I mean, but, but nonetheless, you know, these anti-war types pretend that somehow, well, there are a bunch of goat herders. Russia can't possibly defeat a bunch of goat herders, so we don't have to worry about anything. And that, that they think is, oh, great, that's the libertarian argument against NATO because Russia is really a geopolitical weakling. I mean, it's... An amazingly stupid argument, but they think that that somehow it's the libertarian kind of anti-war argument, which is really you know, the stupidest possible argument. What's even more striking was the debate that John Mearsheimer and Stephen Walt had with Michael McFall and that rabid Polish diplomat. One thing that disappointed me about that debate was how Mearsheimer and Walt did not point out how the U.S. has been running like a stealth NATO operation in the Ukraine since 2014, providing intel and arming Ukraine to the teeth. And if you listen to like stuff like Dmitry Orlov talks about, he even I, I heard him in one podcast appearance where he said that part of like the Ukrainian military's doctrine is to retake Crimea and the Donbass. So it was like only like a matter of time before they would have mounted some type of punitive maneuvers towards like either the Donbass or Crimea or both. So yeah, I think that there's some analysis that's missing there because that's one of the- Exactly, you're absolutely right. That That's what they, they didn't really emphasize, Mearsheimer and Wald, what the United States has been doing and why- this posed a serious threat to Russia. I mean, let's always remember, 
you know, Russia has always been a very cautious power. It's always cautious. It's, it's, it never does anything recklessly. It's not like the United States. They know their vulnerabilities, so they don't do anything that would get them into trouble. But they did it because they realized that you know, their options were running out. Ukraine as a kind of uh, forward base for NATO, as a kind of giant aircraft carrier armed by NATO and directed at Russia, was causing them a serious problem. I mean, I think they were probably expecting an attack this spring on the Donbass, which would be a serious problem for Russia because it would probably, you know, a lightning attack along the lines of Croatia Operation uh, Storm in 1995. A lightning attack would probably lead to the defeat of the Donbass and uh, you know, ethnic cleansing on a huge scale. It would be a terrible blow and a humiliation for Russia because Russia had said that it was going to protect these people. So it either would be a catastrophe for Russia, maybe maybe lead even to the fall of Putin, or Russia would be drawn into the war, but on a uh, great disadvantage to itself. You know, it would have to move in at a later uh, stage and, and it would be a much more difficult war. Russia acted preemptively. But Walter Mearsheimer, instead of addressing that, they say, well, Russia acted stupidly, Russia acted irrationally, but we must accept that sometimes great powers act stupidly and irrationally. Well, that's an argument guaranteed to lose. I mean, it's that's it. I mean, when you make that argument, you've lost the argument. Once you accept it, that Russia's yeah. actions were stupid and unjustified, you're not going to be able to persuade anyone to say that, uh, well, you know, we should nonetheless uh, take Russia's interests into account. And then particularly, and again, this is something emphasized by Walton Mearsheimer and by those people that are talking about those anti-war.com uh, conservative, American conservative, they say, well, Russia could get itself into a really desperate situation and then they might resort to nuclear weapons. So we have to be very, very careful. You know, we have to, it's like walking on eggshells when we deal with Russia because they might just let off nuclear weapons. This is so ridiculous. You know, let, let's say even if you're, things were not going well for Russia and, and they're going pretty decently, but even if things were not going well, why wouldn't they just simply escalate with the weapons that they have? Why, would, why on earth would they resort to nuclear weapons? I mean, it, it makes absolutely no sense. They've given no indication at any time that they would use nuclear weapons. But for Walter Mearsheimer to suggest that, well, if we push Russia too, uh, too much, then they might resort to nuclear weapons, again, you've lost the argument. Because then they'll say, well, you know, so Russia is irrational. Russia's actions were unjustified. And they might use nuclear weapons. And now you're telling us that we have to take their interests into account? Yeah, that's really bizarre. Yeah, that, that, that's exactly right. And then when they compare it, well, you know, well, 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 you know, but the United States, it's acted stupidly in the past. And then they say, well, you know, look, the United States, you know, going to Vietnam and then Central America in the 80s. And then, of course, Iraq. But there's no symmetry in any of that. I mean, you know, the Americans went 13,000 miles into Vietnam on the premise that um, a communist victory in Vietnam would mean that the world would go communist. I mean, so of course, it's, it's an absolutely ridiculous idea. And there's no comparison with, with, with Russia, which is surrounded. It is surrounded in the West by a hostile military alliance, and a military alliance that explicitly, it's the raison d'etre, is hostility towards Russia. It says Russia is our enemy. And it's, you know, Russia, it's surrounded on its Western borders with these uh, enemy states 
who are rabid. I mean, you know, Baltic states, Poland. I mean, you know, these, these countries are seriously, you know, have, have something, you know, wrong with them. You know, they, they hate Russia so much. That's what Russia is. And Russia said, you know, all our problems come from the West. We don't have a problem on the East. And that's another thing where, like, you know, Pat Buchanan, who should also be put in this list of people who get everything wrong, he said, well, you know, you know, if we push Russia and China together, what will happen is that the Chinese are probably going to go and take a piece of a uh, chunk of Russia. You know, they, they went to war in 1969. And, you know, I, mean, I don't think Russians really want that. You know, they, they're afraid of China. Complete, utter nonsense. Whatever happened between Russia and China in 1969, that was 50 years ago. They have signed agreements saying that neither has any territorial claims against the other. They are inseparable. Now, will they be inseparable in 50 years' time? I have no idea. But at the moment, Russia and China are inseparable. And Russia doesn't fear China. China doesn't fear Russia. Russia does very much fear the West. And that's what I mean. It's like there's no comparison with America going 13,000 miles into Southeast Asia uh, because of this strange theory about the, the dominoes. and Yeah, the domino. <laughs> yeah. If Vietnam falls, you know, Japan is next, uh, you know, which is a ludicrous idea with what Russia thinks. Same, same with Central America. I mean, in the 1980s, you're in Nicaragua, tiny little Nicaragua, going communist, posed such a huge threat to the United States that the United States essentially had to launch a war against Nicaragua, had to blockade Nicaragua's ports, had to mine Nicaragua's ports. I mean, are you seriously comparing that idiocy of the, a threat from Nicaragua with what Russia is, is facing with NATO? And this was said by Mearsheim. I mean, it's, it's, it's you know, and he's supposed to be this, you know, this big shot professor of political science at the you know, Chicago University of Walt is, it, you know, it, it's, it's an, an absolutely absurd argument. Uh, and again, you know, you, you know, even in that debate, you know, Mearsheim was boasting that somehow back in 1994, he was, you know, I was urging that Ukraine shouldn't give up its nuclear weapons. Again, you know, an, an absolutely nonsensical argument to make because, as anyone can tell you, Ukraine never had nuclear weapons. This is one of these absolute, you know, old wives' tales, which is constantly being put about obviously by Zelensky and his crew, that somehow Ukraine had nuclear weapons. There were Soviet nuclear weapons based on Ukraine soil, just as they were in Belarus, just as they were in uh, Kazakhstan. They were never, never under Ukrainian command. You know, they were under Russian command because Russia was the successor state of the Soviet Union. The issue in 1994 was simply to transfer them back to Russia and, you know, they went for a pretty penny for that. They, you know, the Americans coughed up a lot of money for that. But, you know, to say that Ukraine had nuclear weapons, it's like saying Turkey has nuclear weapons. Belgium has nuclear weapons. Italy has nuclear weapons. You know, I mean, these are nuclear weapons that are you know, based in Turkey, Belgium, Italy. They are under American control. Italy doesn't have nuclear weapons. And yet it's constantly said that somehow Ukraine well, had a huge nuclear fire. Uh, in 1994, and they gave it up. And look what, what happened when they gave up nuclear weapons. We betrayed Ukraine. Again, Pat Buchanan is putting out this nonsense as well. So, uh, again, you know, another one of this, you know, I, I, whatever you call them, isolationist, libertarian, realist thinking is just completely stupid. That's even more shocking how Mearsheimer, who's written a lot about nuclear deterrence, 
would actually invoke this nuclear fear mongering because the only scenario I would see Russia ever using nukes is if like the US and the entire NATO would bring their conventional forces into Ukraine and then like start getting the upper hand against Russia and potentially threaten Russia's territorial sovereignty. That's like the only case that they would probably do that. But that's an insanely rare freak show scenario. And I don't take that nuclear fear mongering very seriously. Yeah. And moreover, with regards to like Buchanan's point about like Russia and China, again, going back to the nuclear deterrence, like Russia has plenty of nuclear deterrence to protect its territorial sovereignty. So I also don't buy that argument about like China taking over Russia. Actually, in Andrei Martyanov, I recently interviewed him. He even said that in some military facets, especially in aerospace, in the aerospace sector, Russia still has an advantage over China as well. So I don't take that kind of concern trolling that some people use. And one final point. I think that some people have to really update their geopolitical analytical software as well, because with the advent of color revolutions and other subversive type of events, you can technically run a very subversive type of campaign against a country and almost like knock off its like sovereignty altogether. And that's one thing that's really scary about like groups like the Responsible Statecraft Org. Because they'll say we're anti-war, but we'll support like some color revolution in another country because there's no boots on the ground and all that. And funny enough, guess who funds responsible statecraft? George Soros. George Soros, exactly. Exactly. And I knew when um, the Quincy Institute uh, came into being and they run uh, responsible statecraft, I knew then that this was just going to be a war, that this was just going to be a pretense at being anti-war as a way of co-opting a lot of naive people into thinking that, hey, well, we're joining an anti-war group and there's money here as well. Because the founders of uh, Quincy were George Soros and uh, Koch. I think is it Charles Koch? Yeah, Charles Koch. Yeah. And the way they formulated it, well, we're against forever wars. Now, I don't even know what forever wars mean because... I don't know anyone in the world who is for forever wars. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I you know, I, I don't think even Bill Crystal or Robert Cajun or Victoria Newland. <laughs> so it's like you 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 try to break into a, an open door. So I always knew that this was this was a fake. But of course, you were absolutely right about this color revolutions because you know, oh, that's that's really good, and that. And that's part of the, the, the stance that they take is that, well, we're, we're against Putin. You know, we're against, you know, we're against Russia. You know, we're against this dictatorship, absolutism, totalitarianism, all, all that in Russia. But the point about the, the color revolutions, and this is something that Putin has come back to again and again, is that you have been trying to destroy our country ever since 1991. And, you know, he, he brings up the uh, the the... Caucasus, how you you were basically supporting, sponsoring the terrorism in Chechnya, Dagestan, and uh, in the Caucasus, and so the, the, all of that, of the color revolution, all, all of what you know these people have in mind, all the NATO powers have in mind, yeah, that that all goes together with being surrounded by hostile states and hostile states who can splash around an awful lot of money. I mean, even in Belarus, they managed to splash a lot of money around. 
And what happens when you splash a lot of money around, you know, out, out of nowhere, you suddenly have protest movements. Out of nowhere, you have, uh, you know, ch challenges to election results. You have a renter mob, you know, with cameras, everybody with cameras to show police violence. And then, which is then transmitted on, on the social media, picked up by mainstream media. And we get, lo and behold, Lukashenko or Putin or whatever, are using police thugs to beat up democratic, peaceful demonstrators. This is all part of the uh, propaganda effort, but I think it has an effect within the country. I mean, there's no way, of course, all these things have a, an effect within the country. And I mean, and, and we've seen what color revolutions have done. I mean, we saw what color revolution did in Ukraine. I mean, they overthrew a democratically elected government. I mean, it was, like, that was, a, it was the violence. The Democrats used violence to overthrow a democratic government. They used violence against um, Milosevic. And again, all these Cato types, you know, who, who are all celebrating. Oh, great, Milosevic is gone. Milosevic is gone. Great, the dictator is gone. Yeah, but it was done by violence and lots of American ruler. So if you're supposed to be kind of anti-war or whatever, you can't possibly be supporting things like that. Unless, of course, you know, you're quite happy with, um, you know, American goals, you know, American regime change. I mean, you quibble about uh, the methods. You know, you don't really think a full-scale invasion of a country a la Iraq is such a great idea. You don't really think that risking a nuclear confrontation with Russia is such a great idea. But if you share these uh, goals, then you're basically just simply, you know, adding yet one more voice to this um, anti-Russia or whatever, hysteria against, you know, the villain of the day, whoever he may be. Yeah, from the glance of it, the role these groups play, they play the good cop to the russophobic hawk bad cop. And it crystallizes like a type of anti-Russia consensus. And there's no real opposition to like this absolutely loony russophobic campaign that's been launched across the West. Now, on the right, who would you say has had the most sober takes on the Russo-Ukrainian war? Well, that's a, that's a good question because um, I can't say that I've come across too many uh, figures on the right who are, are worth reading. I mean, I think there have been quite sensible voices from a kind of intelligent left. I mean, I think that the people around the gray zone, Glenn Greenwald, uh, Michael Tracy, all this Aaron Matthew, I think they've been sensible. I think they've been uh, reasonable in their um, analysis. But now this person that you just mentioned, Andre Martianov, I mean, I guess you could say he's, he's on the right. I mean, I don't think, he, you know, going by what he writes and, and by his um, podcast, I mean, I don't think he's on the left, but he's certainly been a sensible voice. But I, I, I really can't say that I've, I've read anyone on the right who I think is worth reading. I mean, it's, Would you say Douglas McGregor would be one? Yeah, that's it. Now, Doug, I think yeah. Douglas McGregor is the one voice that I think is worth listening to. I think it's interesting that he, he isn't really used that much. I mean, I think um, even Tucker Carlson doesn't really use him that much, which itself is kind of interesting that we that's, can look yeah. at the Fox News, that Fox News lineup, primetime lineup, you know, Tucker, Hannity, and then Ingram. Now, you know, Tucker was kind of, you know, always a cool, skeptical voice. Hannity and Ingram were very much gung-ho with Ukraine initially. 
obviously news got back to them that their kind of audience really were not supporting Ukraine. So they just dropped the subject altogether. You know, Hannity just dropped it. I mean, his first few broadcasts about Putin's war of annihilation and complete meltdown uh, that he and um, uh, Mark Levin had, that's all gone. He never, you know, Hannity never brings it up. Ingram never brings it up. And even Tucker very rarely brings it up. So I haven't seen McGregor now for quite a while. Yes, that's actually a good observation. Now that I think about it, he has not made many appearances on there. And what's even more amusing, he's been featured on the American Conservative as well, too. But not much now. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, now that's right. I mean, he kind of appears occasionally on the American Conservative, you know, know, a sensible voice there. But I suspect that when it comes to Fox News, I just don't think Fox News really wants to hear any voices that are skeptical about Ukraine and not unfriendly towards Russia, or let's say sympathetic to Russia. I think they're not going to do it. I think, you know, Tucker Carlson, obviously I don't know him personally, but I, I imagine he's quite shrewd, knows what he can get away with or what he can't get away with at Fox News. And so I think he's very much toned down an issue that I think, you know, given his interest, given his agenda, he should be running with, you know, much more vigorously than he is. One person now that I think of that I noticed that has not really been on Fox, that's been pretty reasonable, has also been Clint Ehrlich. He was like initially one of the people that was saying like, hey guys, we need to exercise some restraint here. But then I noticed that he's been kind of hedging his takes like a month or two ago, and he's just totally dropped off. But it's becoming abundantly clear. And I've been saying this to some people that the narrative now in the corporate press is starting to change on Ukraine. And I've seen some pieces like on the New York Times, they're kind of subtly throwing Zelensky under the bus. Yes. No, I absolutely agree. You know, we're going through this great game, very familiar in the American political scene, which is to blame the unworthy ally. You know, we did so much for Zelensky. You know, we went out of our way, gave him everything he wanted, you know, all the arms he wanted, all the money he wanted, gave him diplomatic support, and he let us down. You know, so it was an article a few days ago in the New York Times, something like, you know, we're not getting good intelligence from Zelensky. You know, we know what the Russians are doing, but we don't know very much what Ukraine is doing. They're keeping us in the dark. So we asked to believe this nonsense that the United States doesn't know what Ukraine is doing, but it does know really well what Russia is doing. And then Biden as well, you know, was, was quoted as saying, well, you know, we warned Zelensky before the Russian attack that this was coming and he didn't listen to us. So this is something we, you know, we heard this before countless times, you know, in Vietnam, you know, America overthrew the first you know, South Vietnamese leader and go in Diem because he wasn't playing ball with the Americans. And then when catastrophe finally came in 75, it's all their fault. You know, we did what we could for them, but ultimately, you know, they let us down. You know, so again, same with Iraq. You know, we did, we delivered their country from Saddam Hussein and look at how ungrateful they are. You know, you know, that. They're not able to run their country, you know, they, and they commit atrocity. <laughs> After all we've done, ungrateful. The gal. Yeah, the and then with Ghani, you know, in Afghanistan. Again, God, we did so much. How much money did we give them? And they let us down. This is a familiar, which is, it's the unworthy ally. 
You know, that they let us down. And I think we're seeing some of that with Zelensky because, you know, whichever way this thing is going to go, and, you know, obviously I think it's going to go with a disastrous outcome for Ukraine, people are going to ask questions. And so, therefore, you know, Americans are now blaming everything on Ukraine. Whereas, of course, it's always the Americans who are running the show. And the real question will be, why was it that when there was an agreement apparently on the table in Istanbul at the end of March, why did the Americans and the British urge Zelensky to reject it? Because if Zelensky had signed the agreement, wouldn't have been a bad deal and an awful lot of lives would have been saved. What's going to happen, you know, whatever you know, agreement or outcome we can look forward to, it's going to be a hell of a lot worse than what was available in late March. But unfortunately, the media already in the mindset to absolve the United States and to just dump on Zelensky. Very weird stuff indeed. Now, one thing that you and Peter have raised on your show that really caught my attention is how NATO and specifically the U.S. are acting as co-belligerents in this conflict through their conspicuous provision of military aid to Ukraine. And I want to give some perspective to people in the audience, for example. Iran has been in the neocon crosshairs for some time, in large part due to their support of proxy units in the Middle East that have killed American soldiers. And this was part of the rationale employed by the U.S. government under Trump to eventually assassinate Major General Qasem Soleimani. And now, fast forward to 2022, you're seeing major weapons shipments and economic aid being sent to Ukraine in efforts to bleed out Russia. The same logic that America employed with Iran becomes like the universal standard for all countries. Russia could potentially start targeting NATO assets in Europe for their complicity in fomenting this proxy war. In this case, would you say that Russia is currently using extreme restraint? Yeah, no, I I do think it's using great restraint. I think your example is a very telling one because only the other day, Israel, for instance, bombed Damascus airport on the pretext that Iran is using Syria in order to send weapons to you know, Hezbollah in Lebanon. This is something that's you know, absolutely you know, a regular thing. No one even asked any questions about it. So in other words, Israel thinks it's reasonable to attack a country that hasn't done anything, you know, <laughs> but, but simply because their land was being used to transmit weapons from Iran to Lebanon. So there's no question Russia could definitely invoke that principle. And let's not forget that the Soviet Union, which was providing Vietnam with weaponry, and again, that was defensive. I mean, no question America was attacking Vietnam. Vietnam did not attack the United States. So, you know, the Soviet Union could definitely say, we are providing weaponry to defend the Vietnamese. Nonetheless, the United States did attack Soviet ships. I mean, in 1972, Nixon bombed Soviet ships in Haiphong Harbor. So, so you know, they were, he was destroying Soviet ships. So in other words, the Americans were saying that if you're providing weapons that are being used to kill our soldiers, and by 1972, incidentally, they were just simply killing most of the Vietnamese. And 
most Americans have already left by 72. So in other words, <laughs> these were weapons being used to kill Vietnamese allies of the United States. And still the United States felt that there was you know, no compunction about destroying Soviet ships. So the Russians have not done this. And I think the Russians would definitely be justified in doing so because they are co-belligerent. I mean, it's, you know, it's a complete absurdity to believe that if you're sending in serious weaponry, which will be used to kill your people, who are somehow, you know, just a neutral bystander, and that it's just all really about self-defense. So the Russians have been restrained. I mean, I don't know why they've been restrained. I mean, other than what I said earlier, I mean, generally they are very cautious, very reluctant to escalate, but that could change. I mean, I think that if if this weaponry were making a difference, then I think the Russians may well just attack outside of Ukraine. Now, you know, there's been a lot of talk about that. Well, if you do that, then of course you're attacking a NATO territory and then Article 5 goes into operation, means all for one and one for all, NATO will be ready to go to war against Russia. Well, not really, because Article 5 presupposes that you're adhering to Article 1. Article 1 means that no member state of NATO will attempt to resolve any dispute with a third country by any means involving force. So <laughs> the NATO countries that have immersed themselves into Ukraine, not a NATO member state, against Russia, not a NATO member state, they're using force, they're using violence, they're in violation of Article 1. You violate Article 1, you can't very well then come back and say, oh, well, Article 5, you know, you know, we're under attack, we're under attack. You're not under attack. You provoked this, and therefore, you know, Russia retaliated against you. That's not an unprovoked attack. So you violated Article 1, Article 5 has no validity. Yep, that's some interesting perspective perspective there because we definitely are going into more of the nitty-gritty of these like NATO provisions and all of that. But so people have to keep that in mind that this isn't just some random conflict going abroad because the US is and the consortium of NGOs, think tanks and all that, they're trying to find every way possible to escalate matters there. Now I want to talk about Europe because noticeably absent in this entire fiasco is the lack of European leadership. Like, my God, because I've always gotten the impression that Europe's strategic priorities are not universal. In other words, the priorities of Western European, Mediterranean, and Eastern European states are simply not the same. For historical reasons, Eastern Europe is going to have beef within ascendant Russia, but other countries, not so much. Now, are there any countries in your estimation that stand out who will give in and push for a negotiated settlement in Ukraine? Well, the kind of countries that in normal circumstances would have pushed for some kind of a negotiated outcome have really been sidelined. And I'm thinking of like France, Germany, and Italy. And they've been sidelined because whatever they do, 
the United States can just ignore them. I mean, the United States will continue to pour in arms into Ukraine. And as long as the United States goes on pouring arms into Ukraine, then there's absolutely no reason for Zelensky to negotiate. The only condition under which Zelensky will be prepared to negotiate is if the United States said, look, we're cutting you off. That's it. You know, we're done. Something the United States has done many times before. I mean, it did that in South Vietnam. It said, well, that's it. You know, this is the agreement we've come to in the Paris talks with the North Vietnamese. You know, you don't sign, you know, too bad because we're not providing you with any further military assistance. You know, the United States did that with the uh, Cuban exiles that he had been supporting against Castro. You know, they suddenly decided after the Bay of Pigs fiasco, we're not providing you with any more aid. That's it. We're cutting you off. You know, no more checks. Uh, And same with Afghanistan. So the United States knows very well how to pull the plug on a unworthy ally or an ally that is, you know, that, that doesn't see any purpose in continuing to support. But it hasn't done it because the United States' agenda has nothing to do with the welfare of the Ukrainian people. They want to use Ukraine to cause as much pain and damage to Russia as possible. And so they're ready to go on pouring in weaponry and thus keeping the war going. So if you keep doing that, then, you know, Macron and Schultz, the German chancellor, you know, they can come up with any kind of a peace plan, but Ukraine isn't going to accept it because they have a blank check from the United States. So, you know, there are sensible voices. I'm sure Viktor Orban in Hungary thinks that it should be a negotiated outcome. And, you know, Erdogan in Turkey, I mean, if you can call it a European power, but it's certainly a NATO power, Erdogan thinks that there should be a negotiated outcome. But there's not going to be one as long as the blank checks keep coming from the United States. So ultimately, I think the war will continue until Ukraine just collapses. I mean, and given from what the Ukrainians themselves are saying about the extent of the casualties that they're suffering, if the numbers that they're presenting are accurate, then there's no way the Ukraine can sustain this level of casualties for much longer, in which case I think the Ukrainian army will collapse. And I think then the government, the political system there will also collapse. I think that's the only way that this is going to end. It's not going to end by a Macron, Schultz, Draghi peace plan. The moment they come up with this plan, they will immediately be attacked. You're appeasing Putin. You know, you're Putin's puppets and so on. So they don't need the headache. And in any case, their peace plan will not be accepted by Kiev. That's unfortunately how the cookie is going to crumble with regards to this whole conflict. Now, I want to go back to the U.S. because U.S. domestic politics has become more intriguing over the past month due to the growing Republican opposition to the U.S.'s proxy war in Ukraine. For example, you had the most recent Ukraine aid vote where 57 Republicans in the House and 11 Republicans in the Senate oppose that $40 billion orgy of military aid to Ukraine. And every Democrat from the neoliberals to the progressives, and yes, the squad co-signed this legislation. So, so much for the anti-war left. And at this point, would you say that the growing America First faction in the GOP is the only hope 
for a sane foreign policy in the U.S.? Well, I think so. The one problem is that, I mean, that's obviously a grassroots movement. It's not reflected in the Republican leadership. It's not the attitude of Kevin McCarthy. It's not the attitude of Stefanik, who I think for some reason has been elevated to almost, I guess, the number three in the Republican leadership. It may be the attitude of Jim Jordan, but it's not the attitude of the whip, Steve Scalise. So they take the pretty much the establishment foreign policy view, you know, Russia's terrible and so on. So I don't know what will happen after November. If there is indeed a huge Republican blowout, then maybe there'll be more of these type of people, you know, the sort of J.D. Vance types who are going to sweep into the House or, you know, or Marjorie Taylor Greene types or whatever, and they will just push aside McCarthy and Steve Scalise. I don't know, because even in the 2020 election, a number of the Republicans, there was a lot of excitement that, oh, great, we've got all these new Republicans. They've been, they're all Trumpians. They're all MAGA. You know, they're all America firsters. They were all duds. I mean, there wasn't anyone good at all. Yeah, big time. Yeah, in 2020. Particularly that woman in Florida was absolutely rabid on immigration. You know who I mean. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Maria Elvira Salazar. Oh, my God. I've written so much about this broad and yeah, she's horrific on foreign policy, immigration, even like Second Amendment stuff. Terrible. Terrible, terrible. Or Nancy Mace. I mean, there were... (laughs) (laughs) This is the class of 2020. So so She's marginally better. Whether the class of 2022 (laughs) would be any better. I mean, (laughs) I mean, there are some good people. I mean, like J.D. Vance, I think, you know, obviously... Like Masters. Yeah. But for instance, DeSantis, I don't know. I mean, has he spoken out on foreign policy? You know, if he has, I, you know, I, I missed it. So I don't know. Yeah. So DeSantis is definitely an enigma because if you look at his congressional record way before, and this was around when like the Syria conflict was heating up, he actually was one of the more reasonable people that voted against escalatory measures there. But I have a friend, Keith Preston, is an anarchist guy who is very good on foreign policy, by the way. He pointed out that DeSantis is definitely on the more like Zionist wing of the GOP because he's spoken at these big Israel first events and all that. And I did recall DeSantis make a statement to the effect when the Russo-Ukrainian conflict broke out that He said that Russia is just a dictatorship with one massive gas station, which is the typical talking point. But I personally think DeSantis is much better off at the state level, to be honest, because I think if he goes to the federal level, he's going to be answering to a whole coterie of Zionist, globalist type of people to get elected. People forget this too. George W. Bush was a pretty decent governor of Texas and had like a relatively restrained foreign policy when he was running in 2000, but then like totally went off the rails when he got in office because he was just surrounded by a lot of people. There's so much institutional inertia in Washington. I think that's kind of my suspicion as well. And I think this brings up the question of Trump, because I think Trump has kind of been all over the place 
on Ukraine. I mean, you know, he says, oh, this wouldn't have happened while I was president. Okay, fair enough. I mean, you know, former president, you'll say, hey, it didn't happen under my watch, happened under Biden's watch. So, you know, Biden should be responsible. And that's a fair point. But when he then goes on and says, well, you know, I was tougher on Russia than anyone, and Putin wouldn't have dared to do anything like that while I'm president, then it looks like he hasn't understood what's happening. And if you don't understand what's going on, then you're not likely to make the right decisions if you become president. I mean, I like to think that had he been president last December when Putin uh, issued those two proposals to the United States and to NATO, that Trump, unlike Biden, would have taken them seriously. He wouldn't have just dismissed them. He would have called for some kind of a conference with Putin and said, you know, let's see if we can work something out. You know, we can think of some big global meeting a la Helsinki 2.0. I don't know whether Trump would have done it. I just get the feeling that he would have taken it more seriously. The Biden people, I think, took a very dismissive attitude toward it. And that was, of course, a disaster because they should have realized the Russians were very serious. You know, they weren't joking around and they, they misunderstood it. So, so I think he might have handled things better in December and January as the crisis escalated. But now there's a question, is, you know, does he have any real program as to how he's going to bring this to an end? I mean, does he have any idea of the kind of you know, negotiated outcome that he would support? So that's why I'm, I'm a little skeptical of whether he really would make that much difference. One point that makes me chuckle that you hear a lot on the approved right, especially the zombie Reaganites, is that, yeah, the Trump was just like tougher, was tough, and this would have never happened. I kind of take the opposite view that because of just the geopolitical coincidence that Trump was pretty much like elected in large part due to elite buy-in from a faction of Zionists like the Sheldon Adelson crowd, that he was more focused on the Middle East, namely Iran, that that basically gave the Russians some breathing room to just not escalate tensions. And Trump was lazy about NATO, whereas Joe Biden, when he took office, was energetic about giving economic and military aid to Ukraine. And it did look like they were trying to fast track Ukraine's accession into NATO or at least accelerate the stealth NATO concept that I mentioned before. I absolutely agree with you. I think that that was the terrible thing. I mean, Biden's whole shtick has been for decades. I mean, you know, back, you know, from the 70s, 80s, he was a neocon and an absolute crazy about NATO. And if you remember him from the 1990s, I mean, he was absolutely, you know, hysterical, bomb the Serbs guy. You know, I mean, you can still see some of that stuff on YouTube about, you know, what he wanted to do with Serbs. You know, all Serbs should be put in a concentration camp, you know, re-educated and so on, you know. So that's who he was. That's who he always was a NATO person. And of course, there was the unfinished business that the people who came into power with Biden were involved in the coup, the 2014 coup. And so that, you know, that was the unfinished business because the whole point of the coup was to push Ukraine into NATO. There was no other reason for the coup other than get Ukraine into NATO and get Crimea into NATO and kick Russia out of Sevastopol. That's why they did it. 
And that's why they wanted to get this off the ground. And that's why I think the Russians were very concerned right away when Biden won that election, that they were going to have serious problems now in Ukraine. I think Trump did have some instincts about NATO. I mean, I think he always thought that there was just something untoward about it. I don't think he ever articulated exactly what the problem was. So he took the safe course of doing, you know, what these these Cato Institute, hey, it's a racket. We're being ripped off by the Europeans, you know, we're subsidizing their welfare states. So he kind of picked that up, you know, that's a nice, safe topic, rather than the idea that I think he was articulating or began to articulate in 2015, 2016, is that why are we on bad relations with Russia when Russia should be our natural ally? I mean, so, you know, our chief rival is China. Does it make any real sense for us to have bad relations with Russia too? He was articulating that view during the election, but he somehow lost the thread after he was elected. And I kind of agree with you. He got preoccupied with Iran, and that may well be because of the people who were funding him that, you know, the, the guy, yeah. the Las Vegas guy. Uh, yeah, Adelson, yep. Yeah, exactly, that these people yeah. were, were pushing this. And again, this wasn't something that he had done during the election. He had kind of stayed away from the Israel. Yes, yes. Actually, he did make a statement. It's been largely memory hold where he said, like, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, like, let's let those two authorities figure that out for themselves. I actually do remember this, that that caused a freak out amongst a lot of the pundocracy here. Yes. No, that's right. And he did seem to suggest that he would be concerned with somehow justice for the Palestinians. I remember he gave a speech along those lines that, that there was indeed a case of justice for the Palestinians. And I think that was a lot of aggravation. But but he didn't really pander. I mean, yes, on Iran, he did. He, he was absolutely wholesale. He said he was going to you know, get out of the JCPOA. But on the issue of Israel and Palestine, he seemed to be taking a generally fairly neutral, balanced kind of view. The sort of view, incidentally, that U.S. presidents in the past used to take, you know, that, that, that America should take a more balanced perspective on, on this conflict. And so Trump was doing that in 2016. But then when he got into office, he then embraced this whole Zionist cause. He lost the whole thread with Russia, whether it was the influence of Russiagate and his you know, anxiety about showing himself not to be Putin's puppet or whatever. But you know, he badly bungled that without deriving any political benefits from it. And unfortunately, you know, if he's still going back to the line, well, I, I was tougher on Russia than anyone else. And, you know, Putin wouldn't have dared to do anything like this because I would have told him, hey, you know, you know, you, you know, I think it was Judge, whatever, Judge Janine, I think, you know, on Fox News, you know, what, what Biden should have said what, is what Trump would have said to him. You touch the, the hair on the head of a Ukrainian child and we're going to pulverize you. So if you're going to go down that uh. of this kind of cretinism, you know, you know, you, you just threaten people with bombing them, and then and somehow they're going to, they, you know, they they're going to just fall in line. I think that you're just making a complete fool of yourself. Indeed, and that's the main problem we have with U.S. foreign policy these days. And it's going to take a while for the right to reconstitute itself and 
go back to its more old right roots that stressed non-interventionism and realism. But great chat, George. I think this is a good place to stop. But before we depart, plug away your content. Yes, you can follow my podcast with Peter Lavelle at thegaggle.locals.com. You can follow me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is just my name as one word. You can follow me on Substack. I think that's also one word, you know, whatever the website is. So Substack, georgesandmovie.com or whatever. And above all, you can purchase my book, Bombs for Peace, NATO's Humanitarian War on Yugoslavia. Very good book. You should should read it because that was the template for a lot of what we've seen today. Great stuff, George. Pleasure having you. And to my audience, I appreciate your generous attention. And with that, El Nino has spoken.